So I always like to tell people, you know, don't let labs scare you. If, if you don't have the symptoms, that's what we should use as our primary reason. I think if anything, we should continue to monitor this. And if you're, again, I always go back and forth with my patients. If the lab finding does scare you, which I, I don't want to not tell people things that think it's important to be informative. If it does scare you, which I understand, then we can do some things to try and bring those levels down. I think we still need to focus on how you feel. If you know, if we give an intervention and you feel terrible, but your testosterone's in the normal range, maybe for you, again, this is a lab range, your range might be different. Welcome to Gut Check Radio, the health and wellness podcast giving you the confidence to trust in your gut. I'm your host, Dr. Nick Belden, a board certified chiropractic physician and functional medicine practitioner. And just for those of you who are aware, the contents of this podcast are for educational purposes only and are not intended to diagnose or treat any condition and do not apply any of this information you hear in this podcast without first speaking with your physician. What's going on, GCR listeners? Welcome back. It's Dr. Nick again. I'm excited. We got a really fun one for you. Whenever I'm working with people, one of my favorite things and something that always gets me so excited and it feels like Christmas morning is whenever somebody's lab work, particularly blood work, comes back. I love it. It's one of my favorite things to do being a prior finance and economics major and being in an investment club in college. I always used to love looking at income statements and statements of cash flow and balance sheets and really starting to analyze what's the story behind the company. And lab work sort of does the same on a person-to-person basis. It gives you more puzzles and pictures about what's going on with that person's health. It gives you more to the story. And in this video, I'm going to be, this is a, both YouTube and I recorded this via Loom, but we also are putting out the audio portion for you here on the podcast either. So I try to be very mindful and descriptive of everything you won't be able to see live. If you want to see it, you can hop on over to the YouTube channel. And we're going to be going over our um, patient of mine's case. Her name is Peyton. We're for, that, that is her, going to be her name for today. And she was gracious enough to let us look at her labs and her story. And she is a very interesting lab work because she's pretty health conscious, doesn't really have a lot of symptoms, feels pretty good overall, just wanted to get sort of a wellness evaluation. And we found some interesting things, particularly lab work that pointed toward PCOS type pattern. And what's even more interesting in her case is one of the main things you see in PCOS is insulin resistance. So you see metabolic health that is really under stress. And in her case, her metabolic health was actually pretty well intact. So then you start to evaluate other potential contributors to hormone dysregulation and hormone imbalances in women, and you're looking at exposure to plastics. And we use a machine learning artificial intelligence software to evaluate for certain environmental chemicals. And she had various ones come back from various parabens, various phthalates, even BPA. And again, these aren't perfect. They're predictive. So it gets us in the ballpark. So it's very interesting. And it was a, a lot of fun to sort of work through her case and work through based on what we know about her habits and her ways of living and her symptoms what in her blood work is signal versus noise. That's a big thing I'm always talking about with people is just because a lab finding comes back high or low doesn't mean it's signal. It doesn't mean it's something worth losing sleep over. It doesn't mean it's something worth investing our time, effort, energy, and money into. And there's some labs that are signal. There's some labs that are definitely worth going into. In this case, we had some elevated iron, some iron overload things that we discussed. So if, you're, if you love to geek out over numbers and lab work, you're really going to enjoy this. And if you're interested in wanting to learn more about lab work, um, that's probably something we're going to start doing more in this podcast series. It's something I'm very passionate about. And I think it, you know, it gives you, it's a, you know, a check, check under the hood, the approach to what's going on with your internal health. But I want to end it on one thing. I always tell people, always pay more attention to your body signals. So if you're a man to digestion, how you wake up 
from sleep, how you sleep in general, that gives you your libido. That's all great indication. If you're a female, those same things, but plus your menstrual cycle. I always tell women, when you have your menstrual cycle, you have such greater insights into your health and what's going on. So always pay just as much attention, if not more, to those things and your symptoms and your function and how you feel versus what some of this lab work says. Lab work is cool. And like I said, it's one of my favorite things to do, but it still comes down to how you feel. Someone, your any practitioner should always treat you rather than the lab work. Without further ado, let's get into my analysis, Peyton's blood work. Hey, Peyton, Dr. Nick here. So all of your lab work finally came back. So what I'm gonna do here is go through sort of the full analysis of the results in context of what it means for you. And anytime I look at people's labs, as important as the lab information is, it's always most important for me to look at your symptoms and what you feel. Because what you feel and your bodily responses are more reality than what the lab work says. All right, so what you have here is on the y-axis, you have the symptom score. So the higher the score, the more symptom burden that is under. And on the x-axis, you have these different categories. So we have body composition, digestive health, emotional health, energy production, social isolation, libido, and sleep. So between those seven categories, this really helps us give a sense of if the current symptoms that you are experiencing, is it normal? And normal means different things to different people. When I say normal, I mean relative to other health conscious people, because that's what we always like to compare to you to other people who care about their health. And to us, that's the best apples to apples comparison. So this gives us a sense of, hey, is your body system really burdened compared to other very health enthusiasts, or are you okay on, on this particular area? So we're going to go one by one. And the area on the left, so there's two rectangles for each category that run up that vertical axis. The rectangle on the left is your score. The rectangle on the right is the median of the scores of all the people that have taken this questionnaire. And then you'll see, so you have the median, then you have these error bars. So it's these bars in the middle 50% right here. And that covers the middle 50% scores. So really what we're looking for is if there are any of your rectangles above the error bars, that means your body system is in the top 25 percentile, meaning it's really understressed. If your scores are below those black error bars, that means you're in the bottom 25 percentile, meaning that body system is not under stress and it's likely functioning pretty well. So the first thing I like to look at, are there any of your scores on the left that are above the error bars? And thankfully they are not. Which is a really good sign. It's not something we see in a lot of people. So this is a really, really positive sign. And then the next thing I like to look at, are there any of your symptom categories or body system scores that are above the median? And as you can see, there's only one, digestive health. So then we can click on digestion and look at the specific symptoms. So for those of you listening at home, the median was score was 12 and Peyton's score was at 14. She's been nice enough to let us use her information for podcasts and social media purposes. So we appreciate that. So her score of 14 we can click on what scores or what specific questions led to that higher score. And it was really questions related to cravings. So sweet cravings, the highest score was cravings for fat, means that tends to happen a lot in your day. Eating didn't satisfy my hunger, shaky between meals and irritable between meals. Okay, this really speaks to actual digestive function. You know, she's not dealing with any gas, bloating, diarrhea, constipation, which is always huge, you know. We always say there's no amount of normal constipation or diarrhea. I mean, every once in a while, it's fine. But really, we should be functioning pretty well there on bowel movements. So the fact that there's a lot of cravings and sort of trouble with skipping meals tells us that it could be blood sugar related, which we know has a huge implication for digestive health. Maybe things are being digested too rapidly or too fast, which maybe is related to eating meals too fast or eating 
probably too high of carbohydrate foods and or just not eating enough protein. And based on some of the things we talked about, we know morning protein has been one of the, the hardest things to incorporate. And, you know, you tend to eat most of your meals later in the day, which is totally understandable, right? It's when, you know, all the stressors from the day are gone and we can sort of sit back and relax. But I think this enforces that, hey, I think we have room to input morning protein and particularly protein comboed with fat to help with satiety and to help to not feel irritable and shaky between meals. But as you can see, between emotional well-being, body composition, energy production, sleep, libido, social engagement, all those seem to be really well intact, which just shows like, hey, a lot of the stuff you've been doing seems to be paying off for your health. All right, next thing we have is your wellness score. So for those of you listening at home, there's a sort of a chart at the top of the screen here that has some wellness score statistics, again, comparing apples to apples to other health conscious people or health enthusiasts. And the the median score of all the other females within your same age range, Peyton is a late 20s female, 28. So we're looking at females within that same age range. So again, really, really close comparison here. The median score for the wellness score is 88. The middle 50%, so we're, we're, that's the, the big statistics that we use for this blood work software, are, the scores are 84 to 93. So at bare minimum, we like to have people's wellness scores be inside of that middle 50%. Peyton's is 97 so it is above the upper end of the range, which in this instance is a good thing, meaning the totality of her lab work says she's pretty healthy and she's she's rocking and rolling. To see what happened over time. So in 2019, her score was 94. And actually in 2021, her score was 100, <laughs> which we see a few times. And now her score is 97. So because it went from 100 to 97, that does not mean she got worse. I think that's really just more of a statistical calculator. I mean, the fact that she's still in the top 25 percentile for her age and gender says that she's still rocking and rolling pretty well. Right, the next we reason we love to use this blood work software is because we could, to obtain all the information on environmental chemicals, heavy metals, vitamin and mineral deficiencies, immune stressors, metabolic and cardiovascular health, to evaluate all of that, you're looking at at least about a thousand, probably closer to $1,500 worth of testing. So when we use this machine learning artificial intelligence software, what it does is we can run that our basic panel and we can run it through this tens of thousands of, or now probably hundreds of thousands, data set collection on all this lab work and predict with pretty good accuracy things related to heavy metals, environmental chemicals, vitamins and minerals, immune stressors, cardiovascular and metabolic health. So it really helps us be more cost effective for you. And then we can look at some of these predictions. Again, they're predictions. They're not perfect. Some of them are more so than others. We can use these predictions based on your symptoms and based on your goals to tell us, hey, is this prediction, is this legit? Is this, I always say, signal versus noise? Is this prediction, does it have signal? Is it something we should follow? Or is it just a bunch of noise and something we really shouldn't pay attention to? Those of you listening via podcast, again, thank you for doing it. What we have here on the screen is certain markers with predictions. And again, because this is a, a predictive software, it is not perfect, but it gets us really well in the ballpark. And it has, it starts at 100% predictions and then goes down. I really pay attention to any predictions that are above 80%. That's where I like to look first. And there is one marker, and we have her history back from 2019, 2021, and 2023. So we've got about three years of data, which is cool. The first with 100% prediction is iron overload. And the reason it's 100% is because the marker you use to assess iron overload is your ferritin and her ferritin was elevated. And whenever we see iron overload or high ferritin in, in women, that's typically not the norm because women's iron levels are 
pretty well regulated by the monthly menstrual cycle. And what's also puzzling, and again, I, I appreciate Peyton being willing to share information, is that her menstrual cycles are completely normal. They happen within 26 to 32 days. She bleeds for two to three days. They're the textbook menstrual cycle. Very seldom has heavy bleeding, never has light bleeding. So they seem to be very well regulated. So the fact that we have iron overload makes me really ponder, think, hmm, okay, what thing's gonna be going on? We know one of the things that can lead to iron overload in women could be acute inflammation as the body is undergoing an acute inflammatory response from bacteria, viral, or even fungal infections, those organisms can use iron as a fuel source. So what the body actually does is it puts iron in its free form and puts it on this bus. And when iron's on the bus, it can't be used by these other organisms and that bus is called ferritin. So ferritin could be elevated as an acute inflammatory response. And we looked at her white blood cell count and she does not have elevated inflammation. So we go, okay, it's not elevated inflammation. She eats red meat a couple times a week. So I don't think it's by way of excess absorption dietarily or excess iron intake. So I'm really starting to pinpoint it might be, and we'll get into this more in a little bit. It's sort of indicative of a more sort of chronic potential inflammatory response, potentially from PCOS. Now, the definitive diagnosis for PCOS is going to be based on ultrasound and other symptoms. And Peyton, with you not having a lot of the stereotypical PCOS symptoms, it's not really something I'm concerned with, and it's definitely something we want to continue to monitor this iron overload status and see what happens as we work on some of the other things. So the next, the next, I'm going to focus on two things here. There's multiple predictions. There's five predictions that are 99% likely. I'm going to classify two of them real quick. We have folate or a vitamin B9 deficiency and a vitamin C deficiency. I love whenever vitamin or mineral deficiencies come back because that's easier to assess and see if it's signal versus noise. From looking over Peyton's recent dietary recall, we know she's not eating a ton of folate-rich foods. And folate's hard to obtain nutritionally. I mean, the, the greatest sources are going to be things like oysters and liver. In this instance, it's sort of a paradox because those are also the foods highest in iron, and her body seems to be having more than enough iron. So this is where it gets really tricky, and you have to sort of assess the, the trade-offs and understand which one may be more important. I'm thinking now the folate deficiency is less relevant compared to the iron overload. It's still something worth paying attention to, but I'm hesitant to give folate-rich food because they're also rich in iron, and we know her body is also very high in iron. I mean, same thing with vitamin C, right? Vitamin C, her prediction software shows a 99% probability of vitamin C deficiency, which is up from 74% a couple of years ago. So really what I think this is saying we want to be careful as well because we know vitamin C increases iron absorption, but we also do know that she has some symptoms associated with low vitamin C. Like she had a, after she had the lab work done, she had a bruise that was there for a week and bruising easily and bruising, not healing within a couple of days is typically a sign of a vitamin C deficiency. Vitamin C is very crucial for collagen synthesis and collagen rebuilding, including of not only the skin, but of the red blood cells and a red blood cell membranes. So if she's deficient in vitamin C, that could prevent a proper healing response. So in this instance, I'm actually more focused on the vitamin C deficiency because we have some signs and symptoms associated with it. Now, in this instance, we know she's also not eating a lot of vitamin C-rich foods. The number one source of vitamin C, at least as far as I'm aware, is kiwis. Kiwis, I feel like, are an undervalued fruit. They're actually been very well studied for constipation, even though you're not dealing with it. It's always beneficial to you know get another win for digestive health. But I think kiwis, citrus fruits, cruciferous vegetables, and based on her evaluation, she 
eats a few of those maybe once or twice a week. So I think you could really stand to benefit from daily servings of your citrus fruits, your kiwis, your oranges, your nectarines, your mangoes, your berries, especially raspberries and blackberries. And also your cruciferous vegetables, namely your kales and your broccoli are probably very potent sources of vitamin C. So that's where I would go to there because I think this vitamin C deficiency is actually signal rather than noise. Three other predictions at 99%. One of them is called butyl parabit. And for those of you listening home, parabens are really they're, they're preservatives that are used in personal care products and also in food and beverage industry. And there's different types of parabens. You have like butyl, methyl, propyl, and these are just different chemical groups attached to the paraben molecules. So they're really synthetic. So when people say toxins, a lot of time they're referring to synthetic chemicals, parabens being a class of these synthetic chemicals. And we we see these elevated more and more and more people, as you can see the prediction software, for those of you listening, a couple of years ago it was 25%. 57% last year, I don't pay attention to, but now at 99%, it's like, okay. And we can sit here and say, are you being exposed to any parabens? And we know, Peyton, you do a great job. And the number one source for people is personal care products. So there's, we know Peyton does a great job at preserving or, or at using clean ingredient and ingredient-friendly personal hygiene products. But what you could do out there if you're listening is I always encourage people, there's a free app called the Environmental Working Group Skin Deep app. And it gives ratings to particular personal care products based on their ingredient list and ratings in terms of toxicity, reproductive toxicity, allergic reactions and immune stressors, the its predispositions to bioaccumulate, meaning it just accumulates in the body and in the tissues, any reproductive toxicities as well as endocrine things. And because we know that there's some lab work that might point toward PCOS type evaluation, we want to be really conscious of our personal care products and what environmental chemicals might be acting like synthetic estrogens, meaning estrogens that are created that might mimic the effects of estrogen in the body. So that's one of them. Another one we hear is the classic bisphenol A. That's what most most of us know as BPA, right? The, the plastic that has been used for decades for everything from packaging of water plastic water bottles to plastic wraps. I mean, just your BPA is your classic plastic. And it came back at a 99% elevation. We know, Peyton, you do a really good job at using glass as much as possible and avoiding plastics. So in this instance, I think this also might be more noise than signal. I always tell people, even if the prediction software says something and you're like, I'm already avoiding it, what's happening? The actual habit and behavior is step one. So if you're already avoiding excess exposure to BPA, that's the most important thing. And then whatever the lab comes back with, it's sort of our job to determine, you know, we, we could actually run BPA, again, these are predicted based off urinary levels of BPA. That's one of the that's the best way to assess for environmental chemicals because you're getting their metabolites in the urine. So in this instance, I don't think it's something we need to over obsess on. I know it's easy to see the number in red and think, oh my gosh, what's happening? I don't think it's a number worth double clicking on again, because you're already doing the behaviors of avoiding BPA. So I'm not very concerned. Last environmental chemical that came back in 99% is something called perchlorate. This is really bleach, you know, so there's a lot of bleaching products that are used in non-organic fruits and vegetables. And also it even says here on the thing for, for rockets and missiles. And, you know, we do live, we live in the, the southeastern or sort of the central southwestern part of Arizona, live in the southwest of the southwest, and there's a military base around. So, you know, 
there could be some plausibility that because we're running Air Force Base, we're just exposed to more of this sort of chemical in the environment. And one of the, you know, as you can see there, it's excreted via urine. So we want to be very conscious of our hydration, which we know we talked about as something that we could definitely improve upon, potentially making sure we're, we're sweating on a daily basis, especially in Arizona. It's, it's sometimes, it's hard to think that we're not sweating because it's evaporating so quickly, but we're still sweating and we just don't feel it as much as you would in say Florida or Texas. So I think this, this perchlorate, which again is related to chlorate, potentially in bleach might be the most significant between the BPA and the elevated parabens. All right, the next three here that came back are interesting, and they're all related to water intake. So we have a 98% probability of elevated arsenic, a 98% probability of elevated nitrate, and a 90% probability of elevated fluoride. Now, the number one source I see people with all three of these is in unfiltered water or in a municipal water supply. And we know from using that same environmental working group app, there's they have a tap water database that, again, it's free. It's one of my favorite websites to use because they offer all of their services for free. They're just a donation-based company. And we know from looking at that, that here in our area of Phoenix, the two chemicals we have to be particularly concerned with are arsenic and nitrates. And those have been shown to be elevated in levels compared to the, the healthy user limit in our municipal water supply. So these predictions of arsenic and elevated nitrate make sense. And we know they also make sense because we know your most of your water consumption has been happening out of the fridge which is essentially just tap water and i think this there's room you know there's a filter that's called the pure water filter the shameless puck that is 30 dollars has been shown to actually remove up to 99 percent of arsenic and i'll have to go back and look at its ability to remove nitrate i know it removes fluoride i'm less concerned with fluoride because fluoride actually doesn't seem to be a, a chemical we're concerned with in this municipal water we know arsenic and nitrate are so these, to me, sort of make sense based on both the labs, your history of using a lot of tap and just refrigerator filtered water. And then also we know because they're in the water supply here in our Phoenix, Arizona area. A couple of things I want to pay attention to prediction-wise, we have elevated copper. And we know from your nutritional evaluation, 97% likelihood of, or excuse me, of deficient copper. And we know copper is just so important for antioxidants, immune health, and also mitochondria. Those are really the, re the three big areas that I've seen. And it's another nutrient that's really hard to obtain from food. Things like oysters, and again, oysters and liver just always come back as some of nature's greatest multivitamins. And we know you're not eating those with any consistency now. So I think there's room to, I know people don't love eating liver, and there's thankfully companies now that make ground liver, ground beef mixes that you still taste some, but it makes it, it masks the smell and the taste. And it's really the texture with liver that people don't love. But I think based on your cravings as well, we know that could be related to some mitochondrial dysfunction. And we know copper is so important mineral for mitochondrial function that this could stand to benefit from that. We also have a 90% probability of elevated, there's another paraben. This is propyl paraben. So it's under the same molecular class of parabens. It just has a different chemical structure. 96% likelihood of a B12 deficiency. Same story here. Liver is going to be your best bet but we know red meat in general is going to be incredibly beneficial for that. You don't present with a lot of B12 deficiency symptoms. So this one I'm less concerned with. This one might be more of a noise than signal. 93% probability of elevated, elevated phthalates. And phthalates are next to BPA, probably the most common known material in plastics. So again, I would continue to take inventory of personal care products of how much plastic you're using. This isn't 
me saying you can never use plastic, right? It's it's super hard in our environment to, you know, they're so ubiquitous and microplastics are so stable amongst all different sorts of climates and environments. If they're going to be around, I mean, the half-life on these things is crazy. They'll be around for millennia. But I think all we can do is continue to have the habits of avoiding exposure and using glass and ceramic as much as we can. Then we have 91% probability of elevated ethyl paraben. Again, different chemical structure of paraben, same idea. And then the last thing I think is the most noise is vit there's a 90% prediction of vitamin D deficiency. And so what we do on people sometimes is we actually ran vitamin D. So it says a 90% probability that your vitamin D is below 30. If we go to your actual vitamin D number, we can see right here it's at 22.5. So for the listeners, the, the lab range on vitamin D, it, you're looking at about um, at least the, the vitamin D 25 hydroxy serum level vitamin D is 30 to 100 nanograms per milliliter in the United States. And Peyton's levels were at 22.5. And over the years, I mean, she was at 14 in 2021. She was at 28 back in December and at 22 here in August. So that shows that the prediction was actually pretty accurate. And this is what's cool to see when the prediction software actually does a really good job of predicting vitamins and minerals that are actually low. You know that this vitamin D deficiency prediction is accurate. And what I see it knowing, knowing our habits is there's just room to add more sun exposure. There's a really cool app called D-Minder that will actually tell you based on your current latitude and longitude how much bare skin you're exposing, how much overcast or lack thereof. And, you know, in Phoenix, there's hardly ever overcast. And based on all that, it'll tell you how many IUs per minute you'll absorb from being outside. IUs are international units. It's really just a way of measuring vitamin D. And most people, if you've been recommended vitamin D by your doctor or healthcare provider, They've probably done anywhere between 2,000 to 10,000 IU, probably 10,000 if you're in the teens and probably closer to 2,000 if you're in the 20s and 30s. I'm not a huge fan of vitamin D supplementation. I don't want to go into the, the depths of that via this podcast, but especially in Arizona, the sun's out all the time. I mean, we really should be focusing, prioritizing on getting sun exposure as our predominant means of vitamin D synthesis. And again, go on the D-Minder app. I recommend based on your levels, I mean, if we can get about 2,000 IU a day. I've, I've had days where it takes me 15 minutes to get 2,000 IUs a day. I've had days where it takes me 30 to 35. So it's a balancing act. We don't have to be perfect. But I think if we start to gain some awareness about what times of the day vitamin D is most out and also how much we absorb based on how much clothing we're wearing, how much overcast, time of day it is. Right, one of the last things I want to go over for those of you listening at home, we have a Google Sheets here and I have plotted out her last four years worth of data related to metabolic health. So her insulin levels, her blood sugar, hemoglobin A1C, which is a three-month average, and also hormones. So testosterone, estrogens, progesterone, DHEA, vitamin D, FSH, and LH, which are the hormones in the brain. We have this plotted out so we can sort of get a sense of what's happening. For those of you listening, not on YouTube via podcast, I'll explain what's going on here. So if you look at her metabolic health category, anything, let's hide this. Anything in yellow is outside of the optimal range. And the optimal range is really what we want to use for our health enthusiast because the lab ranges are really just an average of people who go to LabCorp and Quest. I think about it, most of the people going to Quest and LabCorp aren't the most health enthusiasts, which is through no fault of their own. It's just sort of the, the lay of the land. So we like to compare you to other health and fitness enthusiasts via optimal ranges. You can find optimal ranges from all-cause mortality data. And also from life insurance companies, because you think of the most people who get life insurance, it's pretty health conscious people. So you look at your glucose, 
So it, it's starting to, your fasting glucose, which I don't put too much stock in. You see this past time, it was elevated at 94, and the lab range is I think 65 to 99. Optimal range is 80 to 90, so we're above that. What I think what this could be related to is you could have been stressed the morning you had your lab work done. You could have had been a little dehydrated that morning, or it could be the beginning of an indication that your body is struggling to utilize glucose for energy. And we know it, it might, based on some of your symptoms of shaky between meals, irritable between meals, cravings for fat, cravings for sugar. So that could be the beginning indications of the body struggling to use glucose as fuel. And then we have, so we also have her hemoglobin A1C, which is a three-month average of your blood glucose. And then the optimal range really here is, I should write it down, 5.1, 5.4%. It's always rated as a percentage. In the lab range, anything above 5.7 is flagged as pre-diabetes. And so over the years, she's been at 5.1 and 5.0, which is fine. But now we're up at 5.4. So we're sort of trending upward. Which again, we're still in optimal, so I'm not very concerned. I would be curious to see this number again over the next six to 12 months and see based on some of the interventions we talked about of sun exposure, vitamin D, what might be happening. Below that, we have our fasting insulin, something I pay a lot of attention to. Her fasting insulin was essentially at nine. Our, we, our optimal range for people is between two to eight. So it's just outside of optimal range. It could be something previously it's been in seven. So you know, but there is a pretty large and substantial fluctuation that can happen day to day in fasting insulin. So I'm not overly concerned with, again, something we want to continue to monitor. And if, as we continue to run it, if it continues to inch upward, that says that's more of a trend versus right now, it might not be as much of a trend. So I think overall you seem to be insulin sensitive, but I still think there's some things we can, and we want to be insulin sensitive. We don't want to be insulin resistant. We want to be insulin sensitive. So there's still some things we can do to try and mitigate that. Last things we're going to go over the hormone, a lot going on here. So what Peyton has always struggled with, or at least what her labs show, is elevated testosterone. So for women, the range is 8 to 48 nanograms per deciliter, and she's been at 75, 55, and recently 58. So whenever you see elevated testosterone in women, the number one thing you typically think of is PCOS. And we know based on the iron overload lab finding of high ferritin, that is also suggestive of that. Again, but you don't have symptoms. So I always like to tell people, you know, don't let labs scare you. If, if you don't have the symptoms, that's what we should use as our primary reason. I think if anything, we should continue to monitor this. And if you're, again, I always go back and forth with my patients. If the lab finding does scare you, which I, I don't want to not tell people things that think it's important to be informative. If it does scare you, which I understand, then we can do some things to try and bring those levels down. I think we still need to focus on how you feel. If you know, give an intervention and you feel terrible, but your testosterone's in the normal range, maybe for you, Again, this is a lab range. Your range might be different. And you just might be a higher testosterone-laden female. And we know you do possess some traits that are typically associated with testosterone, particularly drive competition, are things that you would characterize as like a very masculine testosterone thing. And since you possess those traits, maybe the high testosterone is just a side effect of those particular personality traits. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong. It just means that is what's normal for your physiology. And we know... She was at her follicular phase. She was about to eight or nine of a cycle, those of you listening at home. So we chose not to run the estrogens this time because I find actually blood labs for estrogens aren't that helpful. I mean, if they came back high or low, that's something, but 99% of the time they don't. And really people's symptoms, especially around their cycle, heavy bleeding, the length of it, spotting, pain, 
whether pelvic or breast pain during it. Tell me more about what's going on with their estrogen progesterone levels. And then if need be, you know, we could potentially run a Dutch test, which looks at urinary metabolites of estrogen and progesterone. Because again, hormones in the blood, hormones don't work in the blood. Hormones work on the cellular and the tissue level. So when you're getting the bloodstream, you're essentially just getting the traffic report, but you want to know how many people are working. And if the traffic report might tell you like how many people are there, but in, at the end of the day, you care most about if people at work or not. So it can be helpful, but sometimes it's misleading. Whereas testosterone, it fluctuates less day to day. So it, it more gives us an indication long-term. You also had elevated DHEA, which is an adrenal hormone, which is a, the precursor hormone to testosterone and estrogen. So it's, and it's been previously elevated for her. The range is about 84 to 380. She was at 420. On her most recent one back in December, she was at 380. Back in 2021, she was at 427. Again, I think this just might be a side effect of your personality. I think this might be telling you that your adrenal, your androgenic environment, as it's called, is just on the higher end. And I think that's completely okay, right? Again, based on your personality, I think it just might be a side effect. But if ever we start to run into menstrual cycle, heaven forbid, infertility type symptoms, I think one of the first places we would want to look at is why is the testosterone high? Why is the DHEA high? Why is the vitamin D low? You know, what, what, what is really happening? What is going on that's causing these things to happen? Thank you all for trusting me to be a part of your day. If you enjoyed the show and found it informative or entertaining, we invite you to share the love by leaving a five-star rating or review on your podcast platform of choice or by sharing this episode with your family and friends. And until next time, trust in your gut.